Thank you, Will. That was just great. And uh, by the way, in case you're wondering, even David danced before the Lord. I don't know if it was a wedding, but uh, all depends on the kind of dance, doesn't it? I think so. Uh, this has been a great day in a great chapel. Just uh, so many exciting things are going on at the Master's College. And I, I know you all are a part of all of them. Um, the Lord does wonderful things just day after day after day. I was talking to Bert. Where are you, Bert? I can't see you over there in the dark. Yeah, Bert was uh, introducing me to a young man when our missions team went up to Utah to do some uh, evangelism among Mormons. They had the opportunity. I think 30 went on the team up to Utah in missions conference, and they had the opportunity to meet a young man named Howard Cook, who was raised in a Mormon family. And uh, the Lord gave them an opportunity to share the gospel with him, and they invited him to come down. And he came this week to be on the campus, and Howard gave his life to Jesus Christ this week. Howard, we want to welcome you into the family. Where's Howard? What Jude said was snatching a brand from the burning. You know, uh, going to college is an important thing. And I'm supposed to talk about the importance of going to college. And I, I want to do that. I don't know if you know, but each year there is an organization that, ought, that uh, grants an award. You know, there's the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Peace Prize and all that. There's also the Darwin Award. Did you know about the Darwin Award? Have you heard of it? It's given, it's an annual honor given to the person who did the gene pool, the biggest service, by killing himself in the most extraordinary way. Last year's winner was the fellow who was killed by a Coke machine, which toppled over on top of him as he was attempting to tip it to drink the Coke that was still in the machine. You know why they call it the Darwin Award, right? Well, this year's award, um, the Arizona Highway Patrol came upon a pile of smoldering metal embedded, this by the way is true, embedded into the side of a cliff rising above the highway at the apex of a curve, on a curve up in a cliff embedded metal. The wreckage uh, resembled a plane crash, but it was a car. The type of car was not identifiable at the scene. The lab finally figured out what it was and what happened. It seemed that the guy had somehow gotten a hold of a JATO unit. That's a jet-assisted takeoff unit, which is actually a solid fuel rocket. It's used to give heavy military transport planes an extra push for taking off from short airfields. He had driven his Chevy Impala. out into the desert and attached the JATO unit to his Impala, jumped in, got up some speed, then fired the JATO. The facts, as best could be determined, are that the operator of the 1967 Impala hit the JATO ignition at a distance of approximately three miles from the crash site. 
This was established by the prominent scorched and melted asphalt at that location. The JATO, if operating properly, would have reached maximum thrust within five seconds, causing the Chevy to reach speeds well in excess of 350 miles per hour and continuing at full power for an additional 20 to 25 seconds. The driver, soon to be pilot, most likely would have experienced G-forces usually reserved for dog-fighting F-14 jocks under full afterburners, basically causing him to become insignificant for the remainder of the event. <laughs> However, the automobile remained on the straight highway for about 2.5 miles, which would be about 15 seconds, before the driver applied and completely melted the brakes, blowing the tires and leaving thick rubber marks on the road surface, then becoming airborne for an additional 1.4 miles and embedding himself in the cliff face at a height of 125 feet, <laughs> leaving a blackened crater three feet deep in the rock. And the reporter concludes, wow, what a ride. Now, that's one good reason why you need to go to college. <laughs> so you don't do things like that to, to destroy your life. You understand? Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. I was reading a survey from the University of Virginia, and they were surveying graduates, and they had thousands and thousands of graduates out of that university, it's a very old university, and they do a lot of surveys of their graduates and alumni. And the graduates hold positions in very diverse fields. They are involved in law and medicine and education and government, advertising, computer technology, publishing, science, and many, many other fields. And when they asked what type of education these graduates who have now been out in the world doing their thing would recommend to new students, 91% uh, of them said... 91% of them said, take a liberal arts degree. Now, that is to say that 91% of the graduates in all kinds of fields, including many technical fields, said take a liberal arts degree. Now, what does a liberal arts degree mean? Well, it's a degree that uh, exposes you to a wide range of things, including literature, history, theology, English, government, all kinds of things, some science, some music appreciation, understanding of art. It's creating a well-rounded thinking person. And along this line, USA Today reported some years ago that 85%, 85% of all college graduates work in a field other than their major. Now, what I'm saying to you initially here is that your college education is primarily not job training. It is primarily exposing you to the richest and the best and the deepest and the widest of your culture. It is giving you a worldview. It is helping you to understand all the world around you. Certainly in a Christian environment, this becomes tremendously important. I was flying from Boston one time over to Pittsburgh on a plane. I sat down next to a Harvard scientist who had his Ph.D. in 
from Harvard. He actually was a mathematician with some applied mathematics and some scientific field. He had done his undergraduate and his doctoral work at Harvard. And um, I said to him, tell me, if you had to do your college over again, what would you do? He said, if I had to do my college over again, I would do a liberal arts degree rather than a technical degree because I think I have been cheated out of the breadth and depth and range of the best of the thinking in my culture. That's what liberal arts education is designed to do. It's designed to give you a world view. Let me tell you, young people, that is absolutely compellingly critical today. As I was saying to the parents a little earlier, if there's one word that can, can basically define our culture, if I were to define, if somebody would ask me, what is the greatest problem in America? What is the single greatest problem that this society faces? I would say in one word, it is deceit. It is deceit. We live in a society just loaded with lies that has no commitment to truth. No real commitment to truth at all. It is becoming increasingly clear that that is the case. We know that people lie all the time. We watch court cases where lawyers blatantly tell lies to assist their case. We know there are lies being told at every level from the presidency of our country all the way down. We are lied to continually by politicians. We are lied to by leaders. It comes down into education. Education is filled with lies from front to back. The, the evolutionary lie that dominates contemporary education. The moral lie that you can choose any sex pattern any sex style yourself, you can develop and create your own kind of morality, the lie that pride is good. There are lies upon lies upon lies. I was sharing with the parents that there are a group of revisionist historians with their PhDs traveling around the Eastern University circuit. They've been reported in Newsweek magazine who are, who are lying about history. They feel that black people have been dispossessed uh, unjustly of certain rights. And certainly there have been abuses, and that is true. There have been, there always will be in a sinful world. But in order to sort of right the ship, they're going around uh, saying things that are not historically true. Things like Plato and Aristotle were black, and all the great people of the past were black, and American culture, Western society comes out of tribal culture in Africa. And when confronted by historians in the establishment who say that's not true, they say, we know it's not true, but truth isn't the compelling issue. The compelling issue is to, is to lift up the disenfranchised masses by telling them things that make them feel good about themselves. Truth must take a second place. We've not only lost our desire to tell the truth, we've lost our sense that the truth is even important. And, of course, you tell me, who is the father of all lies? Satan, who is the great deceiver who fills the world with his deception? Here we are living at the last days when men increasingly become deceivers and deceiving. The lies just continue to escalate. If you're going to get a liberal arts education, you are likely to be exposed in most environments to lies. You can even go to a Christian college and be exposed to the, to the pervasive lie of evolution. You can be exposed in many places to the moral lie that homosexuality is a noble choice if that's the way you're wired. The lies are abundant. They are rampant. There's no real concern 
for truth. There's no concern for absolutes. And so what you have is this amorphous worldview that people have today that they basically develop themselves. And in the midst of that, the Word of God stands as a light in the darkness, as a rock in the midst of the quicksand. And what we're committed to here in this liberal arts education is giving you a worldview that is distinctively biblical. I'm not so concerned that you learn some technical skill. You'll do fine if you have mental capabilities and if you know how to work. And I'll mention some of the things that will help you in that area. I've watched that with my own children who graduated and have gone out and, and been successful. And many other graduates who have come through, through here and been eminently successful. And they'll continue to be. And it's not necessarily because of some technical thing. It's because they have some components in place uh, like hard work and things like that. They have some skills that they've learned while they were here in school. And when they go into their areas of success, they bring a distinctively Christian worldview that helps them to sort out the mess and bring some sanity to the issues. I was talking the other day to a very prominent individual who is responsible um, for financial relationships with some very prominent corporations. And this individual was telling me that he was talking to one of the presidents of one of the large corporations that he works with who said to him, in our corporation, we have hired graduates from UCLA, we have hired graduates from USC, and we recently hired a graduate of the Master's College. We have never seen the level of competency, the level of commitment, or the character in any person that we have hired from any other school that can come close to this young person from the Master's College more creative and more capable in the field than anybody we've seen with the character to go with it. Liberal arts education gives you a well-rounded sense of what you need to be to succeed in life and a proper worldview. Now, what does it take to, to really make it in life? Let, let, me, let me just give you some things that liberal arts education should give you in general. Number one, the ability to communicate. The ability to communicate. Communication skill. This is according to the University of Virginia study. They said the most compelling demand in the, in the fields of all of these people who graduate, the most common denominator is an ability to communicate. I have an obvious concern about that as a communicator. I, I want to always start with the basics, like removing the most common word in the English language spoken, and it's the word um. You can hear somebody speak who's not a very polished speaker, hasn't thought about it, and you'll hear um mentioned more than any other word, and that's not even a word. Getting over using crutches is just a basic thing, but learning how to communicate effectively, absolutely essential, because therein lies the ability to inform people. Therein lies the ability to, to teach people, to persuade people, to lead people. You have to be able to communicate if you're going to step into an environment where you will be drawn into leadership. Number two is interpersonal skills. The ability to work with people. The ability to bring people into a team environment, work with them on a meaningful level, Mutually learn and stimulate each other, give and take, lead and follow. And thirdly, the University of Virginia said, the third most compelling thing needed is critical thinking skills. What is that? Discernment. It's the ability to sort through things. And it's really very difficult to do that unless you have a starting point and a foundation, unless you have a fixed point of reference and a, an absolute standard. And of course, we as Christians have that. And then from there, you go on to be able to reason and analyze and correlate information and come up with truth 
and solve problems. That's what the world's looking for. People who can inform and persuade, who can articulate viewpoints, who can consequently mobilize people, teach them, persuade them, people who have skill at working together as a team, and people who are critical thinkers, who can discern and analyze, solve problems, sort out issues, and come to truth. And so as I look at what we want to do here at the Master's College in a dynamic Christian environment where the Word of God is the core of everything, the first thing we want to do is teach you how to reason. We want to start at that critical thinking point. We want to give you the ability to sort out the stuff, to think critically, analytically. And what does it mean to think critically or analytically or to discern? It means to separate. It means to be able to separate truth from error, to sort out the true from the false, the real from the, the not so real. And sometimes there are subtleties there. Of course, we have a society that is hard-pressed to be able to do that because they're exposed to endless lies and endless deception and in these days, the medium is the issue and not the message. But we want you to be able to sort through your culture and to see it for what it really is. We want you to be able to listen to some politician. We want you to be able to watch something on television or hear something on the radio or read a book and be able to sort through that to truth and distinguish truth from error. That makes you a priceless person. That makes you extremely valuable to the kingdom of God, to the souls of men and the destinies of men and very valuable to people who are concerned with issues of truth. That is an absolutely crucial thing. Part of your academic training, and reading and sorting through history and, and assessing and studying and learning is to bring the skills that you need to be a very discerning people. The ability to reason in our society, of course, is being assaulted. It's being assaulted in the entertainment mentality where people don't want you to think, they just want you to feel. That's the whole idea. That's the television generation. Neil Postman has written some incredible stuff about this. Uh, we live in a time when the media has dictated to us that basically we're supposed to feel and not think. That's what television does. It keeps inexorable pictures moving across real fast. And we look at those things and they go so fast, we, we just sort of emote with them. It's sort of mindless. In fact, I often think if you really think when you watch television, you'll probably turn it off. Nothing is left there long enough for you to think. You, you watch the news, for example, and some deal comes on in 30 seconds, it's gone. Another deal, 30 seconds, it's gone. 15 seconds, it's gone. Five seconds, it's gone. They never tell you much about it. They show a, They tell you there was a fire in Malibu, and then up in a little box in the corner there are flames going like this as if you didn't know what a fire looked like. <laughs> and there were some firemen putting it out, and they show a guy in a yellow hat with a hose. And you think those people on there, those anchor people, are, are socioeconomic theorists, and what they are is talking hairdos reading a script and they're there for one reason they sound believable and they have been market tested and you like their teeth and their smile and their hair and their demeanor and they're sold and the whole idea by the way of the thing anyway the whole idea of the news is to sell the commercials by the way it's interesting I just saw this statistic a week ago of the 20 year old to 30-year-old population of America, less than 6% of them watch the news. 94% of the young generation could care less. We're literally being disconnected and creating our own little worlds 
where we just want to be entertained. We don't want reality. We want fantasy. And if we do want reality, it's the bizarre kind that shows up on goofy TV programs. So what happens when you create a television generation, sort of an MTV mentality, a, a sort of a rock music video mentality, all you get is disconnected, emotionally traumatizing images, and there's really no ability to think deeply about anything. It shows up, you know, in things like the difference between Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Postman points out Jonathan Edwards, when he used to preach during the Great American Awakening, would preach for an hour or more, and when he would preach, he would read his sermon. He would read it word for word for word. He was probably the greatest preacher America's ever known and maybe the most brilliant mind in theology this country will ever know. And Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he had his church of several hundred, and that's all, would preach week after week reading his manuscript, and he would read it with no inflection. He would read it in a monotone because he was afraid somebody might react to his style rather than to simple truth or profound truth. And so in order to make sure he wasn't manipulating anybody, he would read it in a monotone. And uh, when he was preaching, as you well know, very often through his preaching, halfway into the sermon, people would scream for him to stop because they were under such great conviction, because conviction was related to their ability to reason. They didn't need to be entertained. We don't have that anymore. In the last political campaign, all you ever heard was sound bites, sound bites. Back in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, when they were debating uh, each other in order to gain the uh, party nomination for the presidency, they had open-air, seven-hour political debates in front of a live audience. Can you imagine that? And people s stood and listened for seven hours. Paul Robinson at Stanford University writes a little brown reader which comes out periodically for English departments of colleges and universities. And a very interesting article in the little brown reader that said this. The title of the article was TV Can't Educate. And he went on to even say educational TV can't educate. We don't need more technology. We don't need technology to educate. We don't need computers to educate. We don't need uh, classroom TV to educate. In fact, his whole point was TV can't educate. He said there's only basically one way people really learn, and that's by reading. Because television makes everything move. Reading freezes it. Words on a page, frozen. That's what lends to thinking, analysis, criticism, uh, evaluation, comparison, contrast, synthesis. As, and that's why God gave us a book and not a music video. You want to you wanna learn to think, you read. You memorize. That's how you learn. And so it's very important as you develop the ability to reason that you be in an environment that's committed to that. We don't need better technology. Better technology has nothing to do with content. And the most powerful way, of course, to come alongside this process of teaching people to reason is with living, breathing human beings who model that kind of reasoning, who model that kind of critical thinking, that kind of skill that it takes. And that's why we bring the faculty that we bring that has a consistent worldview, that have their degrees in their field, that understand the depth and the range of their disciplines, but with a Christian worldview and who model the kind of critical ability to sort through information and to teach you how to do the same so that you don't go out there and become inefficient or worse, deceived and led astray by the lies that are so rampant on every front. You can imagine going to a university 
and getting in a very exotic science department and having the professor stand up. And this, would, this was a professor at Harvard and have him say to you, his name is Tryon, evolution is just one of those things that happens from time to time. Or have him say to you, man is the unintended consequence of a whole lot of happenstance chances. That is a, that is a massive lie. And is the very reason why scientists even now are becoming jaded with their discipline. A new book I'm reading called The End of Science, written by a secular scientist. It's titled The End of Science, and it's one of half a dozen new books that have come out from scientists that basically is saying we've spent all this time fussing with data. We don't know anything more about our souls. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. We don't know why we exist. We don't know the, the spiritual and metaphysical answers. Let's can science and leap into metaphysics. And that's what they're going to do. There aren't any answers there. That lie still perpetuates itself. Why? Because people don't want God. Because if there's God, then there's law. And if there's law, then there's a judge. And if there's a law and a judge, you can't do what you want. It's really a, the love of iniquity that sets them apart from that desire. Talk about the, the second thing that I think is important that we want to accomplish here, and that's teach you how to communicate teach you the, the ability, poised ability to communicate effectively. And let me tell you something, young people. The first rule of communication is to be talking about something you believe is true. Sometimes young men in the seminary will say to me, um, um, what's the key to really being clear in your speaking? And it's very easy. The key to being clear in your speaking is to know what you're talking about. Sometimes you'll hear somebody speak and you have no idea what they're talking about. You know why? Because they don't have any idea what they're talking about. It's very easy to be hard to understand. All you have to do is not know your subject. And if you don't know what you're talking about, nobody else will. Somebody might walk away and say, oh, that was profound. So profound I didn't get it. Don't kid yourself. Now, it may be that you can't understand something because you don't know terminology. Or it's a very technical field that has a very technical vocabulary. But generally speaking, the key to being effective in communication is knowing what you're talking about. And because you have the opportunity to be trained and educated in a place that sets down solid convictions, you have a foundation on which to build those convictions and those beliefs that become the substance of what you communicate. Honesty and integrity and truth and virtue and all those things that the world really, really honors but doesn't know where to to find, you embody, you have the foundation of necessary convictions to communicate. I mean, it's a tremendous, it's a tremendous thing to think about. When I went to college, you know, basically I went to college to play football. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I did. And baseball and, and basketball. And, but primarily I went there to play football. That sort of dominates your life. And education was somewhat, um, well, I never let my books get in the way of it. I'll say it that way. My first few years in college, you know, I had enough gray matter to skid by and do pretty well and get B's and not make a real major commitment. I look back on that with some regret at this particular point uh, because I don't think it really honored the Lord. But I was sort of focused, you know, into this, uh, this athletic thing. And there I was just, you know, going through the stuff. And when I found some information I liked, I went after it and did well. And when there was stuff I didn't like, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And... I uh, kind of fumbled around a little bit in college, and, but there was one thing I wanted to learn, and that was I wanted to learn to be effective in communicating, 
because I, I, really, I really believed that was crucial. Little did I know that when I got out of seminary, and I got real serious as a student in seminary, and it was kind of bad in a way because I, I did so well in seminary that my mother knew that all my life I had come up short. And I kept trying to tell her, this is the best I can do. And she found out when I got to seminary, I hadn't been telling her the truth. But anyway, when I got out of seminary, little did I know that I would spend the rest of my life writing what's going to turn out to be a 40-volume commentary on the whole New Testament. Or in the 18 months I'm in right now, writing a full study Bible on the whole of the Bible. And I've just spent about 150 hours in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, verse by verse, writing footnotes. I spend all my weeks and all my days and all my years communicating and speaking and there is still a tremendous premium on that. I'll tell you, learning how to write and how to communicate is a tremendous, tremendous benefit. You need to take advantage of that opportunity to be able to speak effectively and persuasively, to be able to write. And the first thing we want you to do in having the right relationships is to understand biblical morality so that you can live purely among people so that you can live a godly and virtuous and pure life, and then so that you can get along with other folks. We want to teach you godly living. We want to teach you what people are talking about today called values, which is really biblical principles for living. Not by traditional consensus, which, by the way, just keeps sinking. You can remember, uh, it was only three years ago when they surveyed the American public, 70% of them thought homosexual marriage should be should not be legalized, or 76%. Two years later, 60%. A year later, 40-some percent. And they just keep whacking away and whacking away. And, and it's morality by consensus. And the consensus begins to change. We're not talking about that. We're talking about morality by biblical standard. We're talking about personal relationships built upon a Christian foundation of honesty and integrity and honor and preferring one another and all that. Now, when it's all said and done, it's no wonder to me that uh, the educators in this part of the state of California want to hire our graduates. It's no wonder to me that the business people want to hire our graduates. They want people who can communicate. They want people who can think and reason and have a solid worldview by which they can interpret the things going on around them. They want people who have standards of morality and virtue and know how to work with people. That's the, that's the most vital thing that we can provide for you in the most, the most significant context, and that's where the Word of God is upheld and honored and exalted. That's why we exist. And I don't just believe we need preachers out there in churches leading. I think we need people in every walk of life who have a biblical worldview living out their Christianity in the dynamics that we've been talking about this morning. These are the things that a liberal arts education must do. But at the heart of it, there, there needs to be no equivocation on the truth of the Word of God. In an environment of love and affirmation such as I really believe you enjoy here in the college. So, my, my message to you that are visiting us for College View Weekend, it's been the same through the years to the kids. Um, I'm so confident in the students in this school. I'm so confident in the impact they will have on your life and in the uh, faculty's impact that they will have on your life and the staff will have on your life that I can almost give you the guilt edge promise that you come here, you'll never have a regret. You'll never have a regret. Because God will work His work in your life in a very, very unique setting. Give us a year, and I really believe you'll become a part of something that is absolutely God-ordained 
and very, very unique. And we believe that by the grace of God. And we believe it will continue by His grace because of our commitment, the commitment of all of us to these great truths. Father, we thank You for our time this morning. We thank You for this great time to be with folks who are considering a most important decision, how they're going to be shaped for the future. And we pray that You will lead and guide in their lives and that You will give them Your mind and Your wisdom. We thank You for this wonderful school, for these precious students, for all that they mean to one another, to us, and to Your kingdom. We thank You for Your work in their lives for which we give You all the praise. We thank You for our faculty and our staff, the noble leaders who shape us and who are the examples that You've set in our lives for the years we're here. Lord, we pray Your continued blessing upon us, that You would protect us that together from the evil one, that You would increase our devotion to Jesus Christ and our obedience to His Word, that we may honor You in all that we do and that we may bring You glory for Your sake. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great day. God bless you all.